News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Fire danger throughout much of the interior continues to be extremely serious. And we are in for a challenging fight in the coming days. Given the conditions we're seeing in our communities and on our highways, I want to be clear. Do not travel to fire-affected areas for non-essential reasons. That is Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth saying the province is not going to issue a specific order under provincial state of emergency rules, but they are asking people, as you heard him say, to please stay out of the interior for recreational purposes, including Kamloops and Kelowna, just because of how bad the wildfire situation has been. For instance, the White Rock Lake wildfire has damaged something like 70 properties. That's according to local officials. They went in yesterday and was, they were trying to get a better look at the situation. Uh, that fire alone is now almost 80,000 hectares. That's up from the 62,000 hectares reported on Monday, so just a couple of days ago. Let's find out how, how things are looking. Uh, Dallas Flexhog is with us, a Global Calgary reporter who is in Vernon right now uh, dealing with the wildfire situation. Dallas, thanks for being with us. With us. Yeah, good morning to you. Now, well, how does it look there today? What's the situation? Uh, well, I'm sitting right now at the roadblock for the White Rock Lake fire, and I can tell you that we've seen several dozen fire crews head back beyond that roadblock to go try and help this fire fight. Um, it's a bit cooler this morning, I can tell you. There's fog in the air and a bit of smoke, so you can't really see just the state of the fire this morning, but last night you could certainly see uh, just what was going on there, and, and you heard the warnings. This is a very serious fire. I can tell you, though, this roadblock has pushed back like about half a kilometer closer to the fire, so I'm going to take that as a good sign from yesterday that they are making some sort of progress here. Uh, Simi, I can also tell you that the good news yesterday in the firefight is that they had got those air crews finally up in the air, so the helicopters were able to help the ground crews uh, try and get a handle on this fire. They're hoping they can go back up today. Unfortunately, no more rain in the forecast for this area, though, so we'll see what happens. But right. certainly uh, some progress, but a very serious situation. Okay, well, like as little progress is good then. What does that mean, Dallas, and for the people who are currently out of their homes? So nothing has changed in terms of evacuation orders or alerts? Yeah, so... So right now there are, I should say, progress, but as you say, that fire has still grown to 81,000 hectares in size, up from the 60-some-thousand on Monday, as you say. Uh, Emergency Operations Centre at last word said 1,500 properties are on evacuation order, five are on evacuation alert. Uh, Many, as you say, were trying to get a look at their properties, particularly along the western slopes of BC's Okanagan Lake. Some were able to see their properties by the water. They were given the bad news that they've got nothing left. Uh, We went up to Monte Creek, uh, just up the road, also impacted by this fire as well. Uh, On August 5th, it tore through the neighborhood. They've been allowed to go back to see their properties. Nothing left there. There was a community hall uh, meeting last night. There was over 100 people there. We were hearing concerns of, uh, you know, insurance questions and and when they're going to be able to go back to start cleaning up, and they just don't Mm -hmm. have those answers right now. Uh, the regional district uh, chair told us that it's going to be at least two years before anyone in Monte Creek can be able to rebuild anything there. Oh, wow. Okay, Dallas. Well, thank you so much for the update this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. Dallas Flexog, Global Calgary reporter, reporting in Vernon on the wildfire situation. Stay tuned for more on that, of course, as developments happen. This is Mornings with Simi. 
This morning at 11.30, there is an announcement from Transportation Minister Rob Fleming about what is going to replace the Massey Tunnel. Will it be a bridge? Will it be a bigger tunnel? What have they finally decided on after all this time? Now, what do you think it should be? You can email me with your thoughts on that, simi at cknw.com, or you can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. There's also a lot of speculation this might somehow be tied to the federal election campaign. We do have Liberal leader Justin Trudeau campaigning in Vancouver this morning. So will this project somehow get tied into a party trying to get some votes to earn your vote in particular. Well, joining us now to talk about this is Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Is this just too much of a coincidence that this is happening during a federal election campaign? I'm actually a little puzzled by the timing of this. Um, If the federal government was going to put money into it, I thought the announcement could have been made before the election was called. We saw Justin Trudeau out here a month or more ago Uh, in Surrey, announcing the federal government was going to put in however many billions of dollars into the SkyTrain extension out to Langley. So the fact that this announcement wasn't made before the writ was dropped, um, as I say, it's got me a little puzzled, and I'm not sure what the federal involvement will be. We've heard Aaron O'Toole already say if, if he's elected, he'll put money into it. The Liberals have been strangely silent on this. Yeah, I was curious about that, too. We all seem to know that when it came to SkyTrain out to Langley, that that was going to be a federal election, you know, promise. I actually used to tease Catherine McKenna about that every time she came on the show. But this one, there's been not a lot of chatter about this. No, there hasn't. And this is not the sort of project infrastructure project that the federal liberals are really enthusiastic about. They like to be able to promote green projects like like SkyTrain, and we saw them support uh, subway SkyTrain sort of extensions in Calgary as well and in other places. This one is is more of a traffic um, sort of uh, infrastructure project to move cars in and, and trucks. And, and that's, I think, perhaps got the liberals a little bit nervous about it. Uh, Delta, of course, is a very safe uh, liberal seat with with Carla Qualtro, but the liberals are hoping to make gains in places like White Rock. Uh, and I thought supporting this project would have helped in that end. But uh, hmm. as I say, they, they're, they're curiously quiet about this one. Is it because then it's not a swing seat or a critical seat? Uh, it might be that. Um, and then it might also be the history of this project, right? It was um, approved and it was going to be built under the BC Liberals. And then the NDP put the brakes on it when they came to power in 2017 because of the opposition of lower mainland mayors. It was only the mayor of Delta who was really enthusiastic about it for various reasons. The other mayors were opposed to it. So perhaps that's what's got the Liberals a little gun shy as well, that they don't want to upset the other um, municipalities in the area uh, with this project. So I think we're going to have to wait until 1130 to see what, what Rob Fleming has in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. We've, we haven't mentioned that one yet, is that all the mayors were opposed to this except for one, and she is no longer the mayor in Delta. <laughs> that's right. And uh, it was always curious to me, the, the mayor's opposition to it. I, I think they were they were looking at a project that was very big, a 10-lane bridge, and I, I think that they were hoping for something a little bit smaller scale so resources could be devoted to other infrastructure projects, particularly public right. transit. I think it was because they had their list. They had worked on their plan. It was on their list, but it wasn't at the top of the list. So they had prioritized it, and they kind of felt like it was uh, they, they hadn't been consulted enough to have it jump the list. 
That's right. Well, surely over the last four years, they've been consulted. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, and, uh, and of course, commuters and, and transporters have been stuck in gridlock for these last four years as well, and will be for the next few years before whatever is going to replace the tunnel gets built. So how much do you think the port plays into all of this as well, Hamish? Because that's also a political consideration, isn't it? It is. And uh, this, this is a, a huge transportation uh, problem for not just for commuters, but for, uh, for, for cargo as well, for truck traffic. And, and so they've, they should have figured this out years ago. It would have been, in my view, it would have been more expeditious, just even if you don't like the project, to carry forth with what the, the Liberals have done. We've seen the NDP swallow their pride on Site C. Uh, they were critical of LNG development, but then they've, they've pursued that as well. I think it just would have been, as I say, a lot more expeditious to, to proceed with what the Liberals had approved, even if you didn't like it. Right. Now, given that you are a professor of political science, I think, is it not fair to say that these big infrastructure projects, have they always been so political? Yes. And unfortunately, this is something that we just don't do very well in Canada. Maybe no country does uh, infrastructure and and procurement particularly uh, well. These are big public spending announcements, and uh, when governments are spending that kind of money, they want to get the most bang for their buck. Right. So, but that's, this is like a tried and true tradition, is it not? <laughs> is that you announce big projects and hope to get elected in that area? Yes, and and the, usually the pattern is is that you if you're the uh, you announce it before an election is called. That's what we saw Justin Trudeau do with SkyTrain. Um, that's why, as I say, I'm a little puzzled that the federal government did not sort of announce anything about this project before the writ was dropped. Yeah, could they have just maybe run out of time to get everything, you know, signed up? And now they're in a campaign. Now I feel like it would look too awkward to have the liberals there saying, yeah, we'll do this if, if elected. Yeah, well, it, it can be. A, now it's a campaign promise as opposed to government backing. Um, because the you, governments can't be making sort of infrastructure announcements right. during an election campaign. Uh, so it would be more of a campaign promise rather than uh, an agreement that's been signed. Agreements that have been signed would have been announced, I think, before the election was called. All right, interesting. So what do you think is going to happen? I really don't know, Simi. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I hope Neither do I. That's the amazing thing. What amazes me is that nobody has kind of heard what this is going to be. You know, I would like to, to think that we're going to get a tangible announcement from the minister that they've decided on a project, they've signed a contract, and here's the schedule. Uh, I fear, though, that we m- might be told that we're getting another round of consultations or designs or, or something like this, more sort of stalling on this project. That's, that's what I fear. Oh, I hope, yeah, I hope that's not the case. I just can't, that, they'll be roasted if that's actually what happens. But hey, Hamish, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's turn our attention to news from another province right now that could have an impact on us here in BC. You may have heard Ontario has become the first Canadian province to approve the idea of a third COVID-19 vaccine dose, but this is for vulnerable people. And this comes amid these heightened concerns over the spread of the highly transmissible Delta variant. So Ontario is doing something that the United States is going to be doing, that other countries such as France has already started doing. 
Now, multiple care homes, as we know, have declared outbreaks in BC recently. COVID numbers are rising, they seem to be. So could this be something that we are considering doing as well, implementing a third dose for vulnerable people? Joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Simi. Do you support this idea for people in long-term care homes? Uh, we support anything that will protect uh, the vulnerable elders in care. So uh, this is starting to make a lot of sense uh, from the data we've seen uh, you know, in other jurisdictions. Uh, I think this is one of those trends that uh, you know, people will follow, and it seems like we're following these, these sorts of um, uh, programs faster than we did initially. If you look at the mandatory vaccination policy that has been announced here in BC, Ontario has now announced they're doing the same. So it would not surprise me in the least if here in BC we uh, we went to a third vaccine for vulnerable elders. So when you say vulnerable elders, though, does that cover everybody in a long-term care home or do you just think some people? Uh, no, in a long-term care, um, all residents are vulnerable. I mean, these are folks with uh, complex chronic diseases uh, 60% of whom have some level of uh, cognitive uh, decline, and uh, they are, uh, you know, the most vulnerable to COVID-19. We we saw the tremendous difference that the vaccination program uh, made, you know, with um, about 40 outbreaks uh, down to zero for a while. Now we're we're back up to 10, but even in the 10, you know, the number of people affected, the severity of the illness is not as great. But having that third vaccine, I think, will be the key to uh, to protect. Uh, elders from this Delta variant, which, as you mentioned, is uh, far more transmissible uh, than the original. And what we've got going into the fall, Simi, is the intersection between the sort of normal respiratory season with flu virus uh, and uh, and COVID, uh, highly uh, transmissible variant. So everything we can do to protect uh, those in care, I think, has to be considered. Oh, it's been a couple of days now as well, Terry. I was wondering, what has the reaction been like in that industry to the mandatory vaccination for long-term care workers announcement? I think generally positive. I mean, you know, associations across the country have been calling for this, and then we saw uh, Ontario follow. So I think people recognize that it's a good policy. But we always have to look at the unintended consequences, uh, Sydney. We do have uh, a health human resource crisis in the seniors care sector. And if we, you know, if there are people, for instance, and nurses or care aides uh, that uh, don't want to be vaccinated, they can easily hop over to the acute care system where there's also a demand for this service. uh, And then we would lose more people. So I think we have to uh, seriously consider a mandatory vaccine uh, program for acute care as well, not only to protect those in hospitals, uh, and many are older people with uh, chronic uh, diseases, uh, but also to make sure we have a level playing field and we don't get a, a, you know, people moving from one sector to the other and, and leaving the other sector short. Is that something that you kind of heard some rumblings about then since this announcement? Yeah, we have heard that. Uh, you know, some providers have expressed concern that they may lose, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent of their nurses uh, to acute care. It's been difficult because in acute care, often, well, in health authorities anyway, um, nurses get paid a bonus uh, if their line is short. Uh, so there's, you know, there's benefit plans that are, are very um, uh, very uh, lucrative in uh, in acute care. So the, the competitive nature of this industry is, is a reality. And anything you do that upsets the balance uh, can have um, adverse consequences on the uh, seniors care sector. That's interesting, right? Because that, you, like you say, initially you thought, oh, this is a great announcement. This is great for the industry. 
but there's always something that happens as a result. Well, I learned from uh, 16 years in government that, you know, nothing is ever easy and, and simple. Uh, there's always sort of uh, unintended, uh, unintended consequences to these types of programs, which is why working with the sector is important. And, you know, we have to credit uh, the province for working closely with the seniors care sector. They've, they've done that. Um, sometimes they don't listen quite as intently as we'd like, but we know that they're, uh, like others, are working, you know, um, overtime to try and get everything done. And uh, over the summer, that's been difficult with so many different emergencies, uh, whether it's the opioid crisis or wildfire and heat. So, um, you know, everyone's uh, pulling in the same direction, but uh, we do need to think about these uh, unintended consequences. All right. Well, listen, thank you for joining us and talking about it this morning. Thanks, Cindy. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, supports the idea of vulnerable, you know, residents of long-term care homes getting a third COVID-19 vaccine dose, as they are now doing in other jurisdictions. Ontario announced they will do that. But this is for vulnerable people, so not necessarily everyone. But the United States is moving forward with this as well, so should we be considering it? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the wildfire situation continues to be very serious. Even though we've had a bit of a break in the weather, it hasn't been quite enough to really get some of these big fires under control. We still have thousands of British Columbians who are out of their homes. In particular, the Logan Lake fire has seen evacuees being funneled to Chilliwack in order to seek shelter because all of the other hotels and places were filled up at this point. So that means a whole lot of people in Chilliwack who need to be looked after. So we thought, let's check in with that community and find out how things are going. Ken Popov joins us now, the mayor of Chilliwack. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. How is Chilliwack coping with this? It is busy. Um, We've seen over a 1,000 people come through our our, uh, centre. Um, the volunteers have booked over 5,000 accommodations. So as far as Chilliwack goes, we're full. So Whoa. they're being, yeah, they're being shipped uh, west, you know, into Abbotsford, the Langley's. Um, I know Abbotsford has now opened up the Tradex Center. So, um, you know, people are stepping up to the plate. But uh, as far as busy, yeah, we had 150 people come through yesterday, our, our center. So it's, uh, yep, they're hopping. No kidding, that's hopping then. So there's not even room in Chilliwack at this point for anybody else. Nope, we are full. And it's like I say, it's all going to the West now. But uh, um, the right. volunteers are doing a great job of, of working with local officials and, and and getting rooms to accommodate these folks. I know there are some anecdotal uh, social media posts that people were sleeping in the cars. That's just simply not true. Uh, everybody that needs accommodation is getting it. Yeah, Mayor Popov, can you give us an idea? What does it take to do something like this? Like when you were told, okay, listen, we're going to send people to Chilliwack, how do you get everything up and running for that? Well, taking it back from 2017, when those fires happened, we already had a, I guess I, guess I can say a dry run in, into how to set this up. And, and um, we have a great team. Our assistant um, fire chief, Chris Wilson, is just a rock star. He can uh, bring people together. Um, volunteerism is, is, is huge because it takes a lot of people to uh, do the administration side of this. And uh, under his leadership, um, that, yeah, I, I see him almost daily at the hall and just for updates and that sort of thing. But he's, yeah, he's calm, cool, and collected, but he gets the job done. So uh, uh, hats off to him and his crew. 
Right. So then when people get sent to Chilliwack, what is the first step for them? Can you give us an idea of what this whole process is like for them? Well, the first step is to come to our senior high school at Otsa Reception area to get booked in. So we know that you're you're from XYZ and you're and and they they add your name and your and your address into the files so they know who you are and then we would not me but the crew there will uh, you know find them accommodation so it's just a matter of a check-in and then they get sent on their way okay and so where are they getting sent at this point is it hotels is it are residents opening up their homes what's going on you know, it's a combination. Um, for instance, here in town, our Chilliwack Chiefs, our junior A hockey team, we have two sheets of ice in there. And the one sheet, we've 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 set up these uh, cots, uh, like 120 cots for you know more for temporary. So uh, that's been used a little bit. I believe Tradex is 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 the same sort of way. And then from there, they're put into hotels. And are residents pitching in to help out here? Because I'd imagine that these these evacuees they need stuff, right? Well, as far as food and accommodations, or on everything, the food side? like what yeah, do they absolutely. what do they need, yeah. and how can people help? Well, I know the local superstore has done a great job, and with our volunteers, some of these folks come through, and they they just don't know where to turn and what to do next. So, through the volunteers, they've been walking them through the you know taking them down every aisle and picking up groceries for them. And that's all looked after. And it's so traumatic. I just can't imagine what these people are going through. That's what I was thinking too, right? So it sounds like though Chilliwack and residents there are doing everything they can to help out. Um, Assistant Chief Wilson put out a call for more volunteers and within about an hour, he had about 80 contacts. So, uh, you know, Chilliwack is, you know, stepping up like they usually do. And it's, uh, great to be a part of this community. It certainly sounds like you guys are doing an amazing job out there. So do you foresee this to be the case for the next little while? Like things things are not slowing down, it seems like. Well, they, they seem to be slowing down a little bit. Um, school is back in, in session on the 7th of September, so we may have to relocate the reception area. We're just on a wait and see kind of a basis here, you know, to see how the fires react. And and uh, as of yesterday with Merit, there's another 850 folks that may get evacuated from there. So um, it's hard to say, but we are prepared. And, and, and uh, as far as the, the admin side, that's what we could do to find accommodations for these folks. So um, right. just get out of there and we'll take care of you. Mayor Popov, is this, do you think, the way to go now? Like you mentioned that since 2017, this is something that Chilliwack has worked on. You just have to get used to being the hub if a situation like this comes up. Well, we certainly are 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 prepared for it, and and uh, um, uh, w- with a lot of thought and 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 work through EMBC, um, the systems are in place. So um, I'd like to think no, <laughs> this yeah. isn't going to be the new normal. But uh, uh, it's been a crazy year with uh, you know the pandemic and then the fires and mudslides now, and now the murder hornets have showed up. Like what else can happen? You know what? I feel that way every day myself. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> for your time this morning and listen best of luck great job you guys are doing i appreciate the call enjoy your day you too that's ken popoff he is the mayor of chilliwack where they have seen thousands of evacuees from logan lake and other areas get funneled to their community and they are as you heard him say full 
up. There is not a spare room in Chilliwack and they are moving people eastward as well. So into Abbotsford, into Langley, because they said, you know what, we are here to look after people. They are doing it. That is the first stop for evacuees who are being sent that area. And uh, they are going to keep on doing it. And it sounds like local communities have stepped up. The local stores have stepped up and residents are volunteering their time. You're in good hands. Think about how stressful it would be to be out of your home at this point. Uh, So it's good to hear that in Chilliwack, they are rising to the occasion. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Raji Sohal has been on an interesting journey the last couple of days, having a conversation with a vaccinologist. Let's find out why she joins us now. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. You know, we've talked to so many doctors and epidemiologists and immunologists on the show. I want to just talk to somebody who designs vaccines and get more of the lowdown from them. You know, I also, Simi, I I am a more optimistic person. And so I believe that when we tell people like, here's the information, here's the science, the data that they're going to follow it because it's good for them and it's good for society. And I've been hanging on to that. <laughs> this <laughs> so tightly. Pandemic. Yes. yes. <laughs> and as it turns out, it may not be the case and people might be a little bit more selfish and people might forget that they're part of a society and community and we all need to look out for each other, not just ourselves. And so as I look at our VAX rate, which is considered pretty good, I'm starting to notice now that percent of people that's hovering around 20% that are not vaccinated, I'm looking at that going, why? Okay, how? And why are those people not vaccinated yet? How do we get them vaccinated? And so I'm going to be talking to people, uh, experts around that a little bit this week. So I did speak with a vaccinologist. She's a retired SFU professor. Her name's Jamie Scott. And she told me that BC needs to change its tune fast with the Delta variant being as infectious as it is. And we need to just get on board with some mandatory vaccinating. It's hard to do it across the board. So just where we can, we need to do it like governments and hospitals, healthcare workers. Um, You want to go to a restaurant, got to show a vaccine passport. So she's fully on board with getting vaccine passports going. And she said that in Europe, it's been really successful. Uh, They are bringing down numbers in Germany and Italy. And here she is talking about that. And their rates are dropping. Why? Because you can't go anywhere if you don't have an N95 mask on. And uh, if you want to go into a hardware store and buy a hammer, you can't get in there if you don't show them that uh, proof of vaccination or a uh, negative test in the last 72 hours. And that's why their numbers have dropped. And it's the same thing that's happening a little bit later in, uh, in Italy. So she also says there that if you're not showing a proof of vaccination in several parts of Europe now um, on a regular basis, then what you have to do is present these uh, negative test results. Negative test results are only achieved after you take that terrible test. And nobody wants to take that test no. on the regular. I had uh, colleague friends who um, in at the Olympics who had to get tested constantly and they were about ready to just go home <laughs> rather than do that. It's well, that, that one, like, you know, the one up the nose, that whole thing. It's just awful. It's just awful. Why would you want to put yourself through that? 
Yeah, there's no way that you want to. So, uh, so that's I. You know, the way she was describing it, this no nonsense way. We just need to get people vaccinated, and if they don't want to get vaccinated, you make uh, this mandatory uh, passport, the vaccine passport, to get into anything, and then it becomes a matter of, hey, do I want to participate in society or not? Do I want to go to concerts and restaurants and bars, and do I want to go to work? Do I want to go to school? If not, okay, cool. I don't necessarily have to get vaccinated then. So she says the state of California, when they switched their their policies around this, things changed uh, dramatically and the numbers started to come down. So the U.S. government said, if you work for the federal government, you either show that you're vaccinated or we're going to test you once a week. Well, that, as a result, then the state of California said, okay, everybody working for us, we're going to do the same thing. So now you got all the state workers, state of California included, the state universities and all that. And then finally, what's happening is like, if I go out to a movie, I got to show my vaccine passport. Right now, it's uh, there's a rule that everybody has to wear a mask if they're outside, whether they're vaccinated or not. Plus, how are you supposed to, how's a business supposed to know who's vaccinated, who isn't? So everybody's got to wear them. Okay. So that's Jamie Scott. She's a vaccinologist and she's talking there about the state of California. To be clear, not all of America is going down like that, right? It's the state of California that's been able to reverse uh, things a little bit by um, introducing vaccine passports all over the place and some mandatory masking. But isn't it interesting, though, that in the United States, it's really businesses that are deciding, okay, you know what? We don't want to close down again. We don't want to have this problem. So we're just going to say, if you work here, you must be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. She brought up a good point about how, you know, we shouldn't put that burden on businesses, but we have to, oh. you know, where the, where the government doesn't stand up, that businesses need to be able to protect themselves and their, um, their own, well, their customers and their workers, right? So, I mean, we've been hearing that vaccines are good for business. Vaccines are good for people. And I just feel increasingly that we, I'm losing my patience on this, Simi, and I think that we need to just get these vaccine passports mobile, Uh. get them moving. You know, we know the virus is going to be around for a long time and new variants will appear too. So we got to get comfortable with vaccines and with masking. I I can't wait to bring you the rest of our conversation in uh, the second half of the show. Yeah, I want to hear about it because I know that you have, as well as I I get emails from people, um, and I shared one with you last week from a woman who was talking about how frustrated she was because she's fully vaccinated and she believes in it, but she just can't convince her 20-something year old son to get it done. And he's just too busy. It's not like he's totally an anti-vaxxer. He's just too busy doing this, that, and the other, and just hasn't been bothered. And she's just at her wit's end. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? This is how, this is how those people will not be able to participate in society or, you know, even enjoy their lifestyle as they used to. If they can't go to their gym anymore, they can't go to the library or they can't go to the bar that they love going to down the street because they don't have a vaccine passport. And, and, you know, I did think before, Hey, like people have a right to, ask questions about the things that they are being asked to put in their bodies. But we know so much more about this vaccine than we've actually known about any other vaccine ever. And there has been so much testing and monitoring around. um, I mean, look at the sample set. We're looking at the world. 
<laughs> it's funny. I, I know I was thinking about this because yesterday the governor of Texas uh, announced that he was positive for COVID nineteen. He's against you know mandates for mm-hmm. masks and vaccines and all that kind of stuff. But he did say that he was taking that experimental treatment, Regeneron. To, and I thought, right. isn't it interesting how some people are so quick to take a an experimental treatment when they're sick, but they won't take something that has been tested and researched so that they won't get sick. Yeah. And Simi, maybe some of our listeners um, have looked at this, uh, looked this up. I have. Um, I checked out intubation when at the beginning of the oh, pandemic, we used to hear about, oh, this patient had to be intubated and whatnot um, due to COVID. And so I looked it up and I could not believe how challenging and difficult it would be to get intubated and and that the patient has to be administered fentanyl no, and you know that, yeah. a number of other other uh, medications would you really want all those other medications in you well, i've been thinking a lot about these numbers how many people in bc are vaccinated how many are not how do we get those people who are not vaccinated vaccinated and of course we've been talking about how there's the anti-vax movement but i think more people who haven't been vaccinated are just vax hesitant they have a lot of questions that they haven't heard the answers on. And so I asked a vaccinologist, she's a retired professor of SFU, her name's Jamie Scott. I asked her uh, some questions around this and she said that like a lot of people are not getting it yet because they don't know how their body's gonna react. And like, I was one of these people who got really hit hard by my second dose. Um, so I think some people are not getting it because they think, oh, I can't really be out of commission for a, a day, two days, three days, right. maybe longer. Um, but what Jamie Scott told me, the vaccinologist told me, is that your body's reaction to the vaccine, like if you uh, feel knocked out, you're in bed for a couple of days afterwards, that's actually a good sign. It's a sign of good innate immune response, a sign that your body is ready to fight off the virus. So that was really interesting to me. Yeah, that is. And And sometimes you just need to talk to somebody like this, right, to get your questions answered. Oh, yeah. I mean, you certainly don't want to just, uh, as I have, uh, end up in Reddit forums online trying to get you no, answers. No, no, <laughs> Raji, you don't want to do that. So I think another reason that people are really hesitant is because they feel we're almost at the finish line. This is a psychological thing. I think some people feel, well, I haven't gotten vaccinated yet. And this pandemic is almost over. And, you know, the majority of BC residents are already vaccinated. So I'm kind of protected there. So I don't have to get it because we're almost we're almost done with this. And what Jamie Scott told me is we are in it for the long haul, as uncomfortable as it is to realize that that's just the case. And people need to commit to a few permanent lifestyle changes. Wash your hands, of course, stop touching your face, which I think I've notice now people tend to do less at least when they're in public you know i love that people no longer hover over each other's shoulders in line unnecessarily and it is certainly no longer cool or chill to cough in public to sneeze in public you have to do it you got to do it into your elbow but the big ones are get vaccinated and mask up these are just here to stay everyone was ready to get vaxxed and then you know oh let's burn our masks and she said not so fast The vaccinologist I spoke to says that uh, as more viruses pop up in the future and also more variants, then we should all just get used to masking up. It's a part of life now. I just want to convey the fact that this is just one variant. 
more variants are coming down the pipeline. This is the third coronavirus, you know, and there's going to be more, you know, there was SARS, then there was MERS, and now there's SARS-CoV-2. So this is going to be the rest of our lives. We're going to be wearing masks. It's just part of society. Get used to it. It's not that bad. And people should quit whining about their um, freedom. You know, this is a public health issue. All right. No nonsense. I like it. <laughs> yeah. She also said that there that vax hesitancy is hitting some people because they're thinking, oh, you know, it's not even going to protect. The vax won't protect against new variants like the Delta variant. So why bother? Which isn't true. Well, for instance, this vaccine uh, is pretty decent at protecting against uh, uh, this variant, and we know that. And let me explain what efficacy is. Efficacy means that people are not going to the hospital and they're not dying. That's what vaccine efficacy, that's how they define it. So when you go, oh, there's a breakthrough of infection, the vaccine isn't effective. That's not true. That just means they got infected. Why? Because this particular variant evolved to make a huge amount more virus than normal. They make 100 to 1,000 times more virus in your nose than normal, you know, than the original virus. So as a result, when you're talking or breathing, you're blowing out a huge amount of virus, which that makes you um, incredibly infectious. And so now the R value, like how many people on average you infect, is going from two to three to five to nine with the <laughs> with the delta variant right it's really infectious on the other hand people don't seem to be dying at a faster rate because of it so the vaccine efficacy seems to be holding it's just that more people are getting infected including sometimes people that are already vaccinated Roger, that is so fascinating because I also wonder how people who clearly had years and years and years of schooling and research and working on this how they feel about a whole lot of people reading stuff on the internet and suddenly thinking they're experts. Yeah, well, even just the thing that she explained there, the vaccine efficacy, I have heard and seen online uh, that people are just making their own summaries, like their own synopsis based upon what they think of those terms, like vaccine efficacy or immunity. I find that people are just making up their own stuff and going with it. But there she lays it out that uh, there, this has been studied for a long time. She's a vaccinologist. She focuses on the design of vaccines and how to make them more effective. And, and there she really nails it with explaining that the Delta variant is just that much more infectious. So uh, it will spread easier. But I think people are, some people who are vax hesitant are just, yeah, they're making up their own... <laughs> Their own way of right. following this. I know. So <laughs> interesting. Creative. So you got your questions answered. That's good. Raji, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. 